Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, welcome back, Ben. We are going through section 93 today. In fact, this is just (laughs) the one section. And usually when we just have one section, it's really long. But on this one, it's it's actually quite short. I was, you know, 93 has it, but it packs a punch. There are yeah. a lot of things to talk about in 93. So so our, our apologies again. If, if we don't get to the thing that stood out to you and really discuss that, then uh, then I'm I'm sorry. There's just so much here, though. So we're, <laughs> we'll get through as much as we possibly can. But but to start off, this is in May of 1833. And Joseph's here in Kirtland. And. There, there's there's a lot of moving parts to this section. You know, first off, we we have this this introduction where it's talking about the glory uh, glory through obedience, and and we're seeing the face of God, and, and God's bringing us into kind of understanding who and what He is, and who and what we are, and that transitions into this kind of interesting moment when He's talking about John and the testimony of John, and what does this mean? Why is He talking about John? And going through that, but then from that we move into this idea of true worship in verse nineteen. Like, how how are we going to know how to worship God? And then going from there into commentary about the preexistence, uh, about how truth is eternal, and about how elements are eternal. And then finally, it concludes with kind of an interesting chastisement to to several people, including Joseph Smith, about their families. And specifically about how we raise our children and the need we need to be able to raise our children in in righteousness. And so that'll be an interesting, an interesting conclusion uh, when we get there. But but to start off here in in section uh, in verse one of section ninety three, verily thus saith the Lord: It shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. And this is this is awesome stuff, you know. So we have the Lord here, who's coming out and talking about us forsaking sin. And in the previous episode, we talked about and we were talking about modality, and and how I'm coming to see a lot of things through modality, and and how we construct those things and pour our intentionality through them, and they manifest experiences in our lives, and they become meaningful to us. And in this way, it's sin is anything that really weakens modality. So we talked a lot, you know, last week about the word of wisdom. And so if we're constructing these narratives and constructing these things, we also talked about how modes of experience don't have to be 100% consistent. In fact, most of the time they're not. And this sometimes gets to be a little bit of a problem when we start to see that our, our belief systems are constructed and we start to see contradictions or competitions in our belief systems. And, and that's okay. It just, what happens is when we write the story of our modes and when the word of wisdom was originally revealed, it took on a life of its own for a while. Not, not everybody adhered to it, and Joseph still had a glass of wine. Joseph had a glass of wine the day before he was killed, right? Or the, even in the, the there when he was sitting with John Taylor and, and that whole story of a poor wayfaring man of grief. 
So even Joseph was drinking alcohol later on in his life, and this continues even into the 1900s. And so what is up with the inconsistency of how the word of wisdom is treated, right? But then we begin to see that these kinds of dietary restrictions that are common among many religious faiths are meant for us to have moments of intentionality with the things we do every single day, like eating. And we bring meaning to these things. And when we bring meaning to these things, we we, we become more intentional with the things that we will do and the things we won't do. And anything that strengthens that is is in that modality considered righteousness. And anything that weakens that modality, we'll call that sin. And so that's a lot of time different religions will have different versions of sin because they have different modes in there that constitute their religious belief systems. And so as I look at this verse and I see, he that forsaketh his sins. Okay, so so the Lord is calling on us to strengthen these things that we have experiences with. And what are those things? Well, he asks us to calleth on his name. Well, so this is a type of prayer. It, you know, it's what's there for me when I'm looking at to to calleth my name is to is to have a prayerful heart to to vocalize and to come into God, and then when we come into that moment with God and we begin to see what is present for us, to actually act on it, and and to let that let that start to build in our lives, then that comes into this obeyeth His voice, and as we continue on in this process of coming to the Lord and being willing to act upon these things. That creates this meaning of these modalities upon which we create for ourselves. And I think it's interesting as far as the Beatitudes are concerned, because we know that the the pure in heart are those who see the face of God. And the pure in heart are the ones who have walked the Beatitude path where they've they've been poor in spirit, they've emptied from from all the things, the stories and the narratives of this life. They've they've had lost identity, they've mourned, they've they've been, you know, as a meek individual without that identity, that earthly identity, they stand there and they realize that they don't belong to any of the groups they belong to anymore. They don't they don't belong in these places where they think they belonged anymore. And and then suddenly they're it's like it's like you're empty, but then the Lord comes and fills us. And and so it's that blessed and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then from that we understand that Lord, how is this possible? And then like Enos, we're like, Lord, how, uh, this transformation that I'm experiencing, how is this even possible? All I've ever, all I did to do any of this is I just let go at the very beginning, that poverty of spirit and like, like a cascade of dominoes, I'm finally where I'm at now. And we, we, we experience this mercy from God that was not of our own making. And because we've experienced mercy, we can only be merciful. And then now it's in that time and place where through that whole conversation and story, now we're in a place where it says, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so now we're kind of brought into this moment of, of seeing God. But Ben and I, you and I were talking a little bit before uh, we recorded about kind of the seeming lack of transformation that se- <laughs> seems to happen when, we, when people talk about their stories of seeing God. The, 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 you know, we there's a in church history there's a really strong emphasis to the moments when God appears, whether it be the first vision or whether it be during the school of the prophets. There are a dozen examples. So the, the dedication of Kirtland. There are many places where Jesus Christ appears or the Father appears. Um, my great 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 I think it's my fourth great un- grand uncle is Zebedee Coltrane, who and my grandfather is Graham Coltrane, who were both in the School of the Prophets. And Zebedee Coltrane is the one that records in his memos and his notes that 
he sees God the Father and Jesus Christ walking through the midst of them in the school of the prophets. We have these stories about them seeing God and coming to a place where they see God. But yet many of these men later fall away from the church, or even if they stay inside the church, their character development throughout church history is not really what we would consider a peaceable follower. (laughs) There's there's someone that really brings a lot of peace. There's a lot of people who had some pretty heavy, violent rhetoric all their lives. They They were ready to kind of do some damage when the time came, right? And and, like Peter, and, <laughs> like Peter, right? Like Peter on steroids, and and so I think sometimes we tend to think that if we see God's face, if we come and we actually saw God, that that would be the moment that would change everything. And yet, in the stories of those who do see the face of God, we look at the rest of their lives and we realize, I don't know if it was the transformational moment that we often think it is. I think I think there's something else going on there. Well, it's um, you know as I, as I've been thinking about that and talking about it with you, it seems to be like most other things, most other experiences that we have with God. The meaning that they have is whatever we place in them. When we talk about the the first vision. Uh, particularly in the context of the various accounts that Joseph Smith gives over time of this first vision, ascribes different meaning in that he he places different emphasis on different details at different times in his life. Because when you look back at an experience, you're going to see it with different eyes each time. And so largely the experience that we have and the meaning we ascribe to it is going to be entirely subjective. So when we have that type of experience, there's going to be different times in our life when we look back on it and and then overlay a, a meaning, our own meaning on top of it. And, and I don't think there's any way to get away from that. In fact, I think that's actually the whole point is that that experience is supposed to be personal and subjective. As you were reading that verse one, I, I couldn't help but recognize, and you brought it up, the, the beatitude path that is very much alluded to there in that verse. Forsaking sins is very much like that poor in spirit. And 3 Nephi chapter 12, we have that slightly different formulation of the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So we kind of have that that verse here, forsakes his sins and come unto me and calleth on my name. So uh, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Is that not what's happening, right? And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I don't see a specific reference to that in this verse, so there's there's a little bit of an of of a difference in in the overlay there. But then blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That fits very well with that that beatitude process here. I don't remember if it was a seminary or a doctrine covenants class at at uh, BYU or what, but I I do remember this verse being um, discussed as a checklist, right? As, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I got to forsake all my sins. All right, that's done. That's checked off the list. And then I'm going to move on to the next thing. I'm going to come unto Christ. That's checked off on the list. Okay. And it's like you, you check these things off on the list as you go. And like, 
when I'm reading that, it's like that it doesn't work that way. Like you can't forsake your sins <laughs> first and then come to Christ and then call on his name and then obey his voice. Like all of these things literally happen at once. Right? These aren't a, a checklist. They're a process that you go through and they are all woven together. You can't have one without the other. Like I said, it's not really a checklist. It's more akin to a description of what it means, what it is to experience that moment of seeing the face of God. And we we could talk about this seeing the face of God in the literal sense, as, as Joseph Smith often did, as the early saints probably mostly understood it. However, we've also talked about this in the, uh, not just metaphorical, but uh, psychological sense, that when we've gone through this process, we are then in a place where we can look over at our neighbor and see the face of God. Or we can look in the mirror and see the face of God. So imagine, if we can only imagine for a moment, if this can't be necessarily a, a reality that we can get ourselves into psychologically, but if we can imagine only for a moment that we were in a place of such pureness of heart and humility and meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and mercy, that we could look in the mirror and see our own face and that we could say to ourselves, I see God because I am really a child of God. I think that could happen. And I think in that moment, this scripture could come true for us in a very present way, not a way where it's like, I ha it's going to take me years in order to get through this. I think it's something that, how does Alma put it? You know, he says, as soon as I caught on that hold of that thought of Christ, immediately all my pain went away. I think Amulek says, if we, if we turn to God, immediately will the plan of redemption become a reality for us. I don't think this is something that has to take us a very long time. I think this is a com contemplative exercise that we could go through, place ourselves in a, in a moment where we could have that experience. Yeah, man, that that brings up a lot of ideas. <laughs> I don't know where to, I don't know what to, which idea to 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 go to. But just the i just the the realization of seeing God in our image. Now we're created in the image of God, and God is this. You know, we're we're going to talk about a lot of things about what God is, with this intelligence and light and truth, and, and yet we know also know that God is love. We're made in the image of that, and yet, like we talked about with section eighty-eight, that the idea here is is that God's light is in and through all things. There's no dimmer switch to the universe. And so, when we talk about the different degrees of glory and the different light of the degrees of glory. It's not that it's a metaphysical light. It's not that there are specific places that have less light. That was the clarification 88 was making on 76. But it's that the light is everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
it, 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 it's in all things. And that's how that parable that we talked about, that God is in and through all things, and he comes to us in his fullness and in everything. And how much light that is seen it has to do with us. So the degrees of glory were far more about an epistemic conversation of our perception of reality than of talking about the dimmer switch of reality itself. And man, doesn't that play out in these next verses exactly that way? Right? Yeah. Exactly. He's saying, he says, I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. The Father because he gave me of his fullness, and the Son because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle and dwelt among, among the sons of men. I was in the world and received of my Father, and the works of him were plainly manifest. This, this seems to be saying to me in this context, then, that, that what we are as children of God is, it finds its truest expression in Christ, in the Son of God. But that's also who we are. He is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He's also the light within us. Yeah, you know, the scripture, it talks about how, you know, when Christ comes, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. I've often wondered about all the different religions of the world that are also practicing these very truths, yet they don't have the language of calling this Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet they live this. Right. Because, because this is not just a doctrine. This is getting us to realize that this, it's talking about our humanity. It's talking about the thing which makes us us, our whole purpose and reason for this existence. And to think just because they haven't heard about Christianity that they cannot understand. By or, that name, yeah. Right, by that name. Or, or even by the systematic philosophy that they read, may read in the New Testament, that they can't be aware or experience their own humanity and God revealing these things to them so that they are actually manifesting Christ. You know, I think of Gandhi, who used Hinduism to come into this discussion of nonviolence, and he talked about this hidden aspect of Christianity that Christianity for over a thousand years had really relegated, but through Hinduism, it went further back than, than Christianity. He ends up finding these these same principles, and then he, when he comes into contact with with the New Testament, he's like, "Oh, yeah, it's the same thing," you know, which leads him to say, "I I love your Christ, but I I don't really like your Christians," <laughs> <laughs> because it's that same conversation. And this is like in the Book of Mormon, I I see that like with the Waters of Mormon, you know, we we t- we talked a lot about when we were recording the Book of Mormon sections about how. The Nephite way of life, as described in the Book of Mormon, was that largely they followed this pattern that they would make covenants and then try to live into them, right? You make a promise and then you stick to it. And that's really kind of the pattern that we look at our temple experiences and our covenants nowadays, So, is, mm-hmm. is we kind of follow that Nephite approach. But yet there's a couple other really special moments that give us uh, an addendum or a caveat to to that practice. And in particular, I, I'm thinking of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as one, but more specifically about the waters of Mormon. Because in these two moments, they have this radical transformational experience with God. 
And then from that transformational experience of a, con- of a deep conversion through an experience, then they take that experience and they symbolize it through baptism. You know, a. Alma's case, it's baptism. And I love the language there in Mosiah uh, 18, where he's talking, where he's like, hey, listen, we've just had this conversion experience. What have you against symbolizing this? Let's go symbolize this. Let, let's go, let, let's go make something that we can remember and, and we can repeat mm-hmm. to, to remember this moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading a little bit into the text here, but just because of how he's responding there, what have you against being baptized tells me that some people were like, well, why do I want to go get in the water? <laughs> and he's like, well, why not? Yeah. He, he's, he's like, let's go do this thing. And so, they symbolize their conversion experience and they start a church. Like no church had existed there. There's no mention in the Book of Mormon that Alma was commanded to start a church the way that they did. It was, it had not existed in the way that when Alma comes into Zarahemla, Mosiah sees what Alma the, the senior's doing and he's like, huh. Yeah, go ahead and keep doing that. Yeah, that's an and interesting so, way of doing it. Let's right? do, let's try that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and do that. And so they establish this church in Zerhamah. And so then they take this church over for, you know, for until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he's like, this thing that you've been doing is a, is a manifest. I know I'm reading into this a bit, but what you've been doing here is a manifestation of your humanity. Let me give you a name to it. Let me give you identity. Let me give you purpose. Let me tell you what it is you've been doing all along. And so in that same vein, I see that all of God's children and all of the different walks of life and in everything that they're doing outside of Christianity, inside of Christianity, in the in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and outside, that because we are all children of God, we are all acting this, we are naturally manifesting this humanity. And when Christ comes, he's like, ah, oh, see, the name for that is Christ. And the people who've been following it their whole life will be like, oh, okay, cool. And now there's a name to what I do. And so, yeah, I see, I see a lot of that here in, uh, in the, what you were talking about. You know, we, we touched briefly on this idea that people who have this literal experience of seeing that the face of the person of God don't seem to be transformed in the way that we might expect, right? right. <laughs> we would expect, okay, once they've seen the face of God, that means they are going to live the rest of their life in a celestial way. And we're going to get, we're going to see this, you know, the, all of the works of this person are going to be celestial manifestations of the fact that they've been transformed by this experience. And, um, you know, a couple of thoughts there. I, I think, um, I think one that if, if they truly had been changed in a, in a permanent celestial way, they probably just wouldn't have stayed <laughs> in, in this world, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> they would do what's called translate. It's like, okay, if they really were, if they really were transformed, then they would, you know, they would move on. <laughs> um, but, but the other thing is, you know, it, it reminds me of Nephi's, what we call Nephi's Psalm, right? Second Nephi chapter four, where he talks about all these amazing experiences that he's had, things that he says, I, I can't even, they're too great. I can't even utter them. I can't even explain them. And then he says, you know, and then I exclaim, oh, wretched man that I am. And he goes on about how he's angry because of his enemy and, and all these sort of things, right? And, and I think that Nephi is really kind of getting at this point here that, that even though a person has had all of these experiences, somehow it, 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 it doesn't always permanently, uh, transform their day to day inclinations. And, there's something there's something there about that 
right? That I think can teach us is that, that life is this constant, um, struggle toward that ideal and that we, we can, um, you know, Nephi touches on this as well, that we can recognize within that the grace of God and allow ourselves that grace to realize that even though, you know, stop judging ourselves because of these experiences that we've had, we think we're supposed to be at a certain level that, uh, you know, step back and say, I'm still needing the grace of God in my life from day to day. I'm not suddenly, you know, uh, this different person just because of this one experience. Yeah. You know, I, I think that goes back to what we were saying before that when we, maybe it is that we see the face of God and maybe that's an event for us. And, and if it is, um, that's amazing. But in my experience, to be able to see God's image on my countenance and to be able to recognize that I'm made in the image of God and to see that part of divinity within myself, kind of the inward conversation. There's this external, external God conversation, but to see the divinity within myself and to be able to recognize that this is in fact the divinity of myself as I'm, as I'm perceiving it, because how do I know what the divine part is? And so I have to know at least in part what the divine part is without to know it is within, hmm. to, to be able to recognize it. And so there is a relationship there, I feel, that, that we, we begin to know and to recognize. And by recognizing and exploring what is within, we do learn what is without. So there's a relationship there that, that goes back and forth. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, that's a very interesting thing to say in light of what we were talking about just before this, Shallow. You know, as as we got into Section 93, I was sort of coming to this realization of this this idea that that here seems to be i'm going to say joseph smith is positing because there's other discussions around this it's something very interesting to be talking about in 1833 because this is very proto-psychological and cosmological for for the time and I, i'm not familiar with all of the religious and and philosophical and psychological literature at the time but I think it's safe to say that this is very early to be talking about some of the things that he's talking about here. Um, stuff that, that really wasn't discussed psychologically till, till the 20th century. Um, but it, it's that when he starts getting in the discussion about the nature of man and his relation to God are co-eternal. He references the father, the son. He talks about the, the spirit of the wicked one. So we're, we're referencing Satan, the accuser or Lucifer here. This is all done sort of explicitly in a external reality, cosmological sense or metaphysical sense. But you constantly see these hints that it's, it's also mirrored within the individual human psyche. That yes, there is an objective individual who is our heavenly father and yes there is an objective individual who is christ and yes there is an objective individual who is lucifer or satan but actually all of these archetypal personalities and and uh realities exist within our own individual minds being souls as well that these are part of of us and the fact that the 
the internal mind is mirroring the external reality of the universe or vice versa is to me a, a pretty profound concept that that if if section 93 is alluding to this is very much ahead of its time it's possible it's not alluding to it at all then i'm just applying my 2021 psychological understanding <laughs> to to this section but uh but there does seem to be a whole lot of depth here to this discussion that like section 88 I, I feel like I only scratch the surface of so often when I read it. I, I know there's so much that flies over my head. Um, all that to say that, uh, that again, going back to this idea of the, our, our internal, our mind or our soul mirroring the reality of the universe. Well, which is it? Is it, is it the universe mirrors the individual or the internal reality of our mind, or is it that our mind is mirroring the universe? And um, I think Joseph Smith would say yes. <laughs> that, you know, they're not necessarily separate from each other. And that's kind of the point. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything more to say about John here, but if, in going into verse 19, I find that interesting what you just said in context of what is talking about with worship, where it says, I given to you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. I find this interesting. What if this type of worship was getting at this conversation? That it's not just about a one way that we're coming in here just to the throne of God to be like, you are so great and amazing, and and he is, but that the worship there is this this relationship of, of awakening the divine within as we perceive the divine without. Mm-hmm. Then as we come into the ordinances that we partake of, you know, so let's say our Sunday worship. And we come in and we were told that just taking the sacrament is is really the the crux of the matter, that we could go home, that that's the whole thing. But yet we continue to worship and we go to our, our meetings and we talk about God and we become instructed in certain things. We think about God we, you know, we, and we try to develop the modalities that that we're trying to make important in our lives. But that this this whole thing that we engage in for two hours every Sunday is about this this relationship with God in in trying to come into a moment of intentionality where we are allowing that part of the divine to touch us as we touch the divine it's that relationship between the internal and the external like what you were talking about you know it made me think of the concept that I've heard before, and and I'm not going to talk about it much because I don't, I don't the the idea of a hologram. Um, and you know, we talk about holograms in terms of like light representations, but, but hologram in the sense that like the, any one particular part of a thing actually represents the whole. Have you ever seen those, those like gifts that do the, the fractal zooming in on something? Yeah. Okay. So like the more it zooms in, the more you realize, oh, that was just a part of another thing. That's the same thing. And then you zoom in and you just like, it just keeps going. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and and um, part of me wants to say that's 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 kind of what's going on with like the human mind and the universe 
is that the more that we study the mind, the more that the complexity of it approaches the complexity of, of the universe that we see without. And this is happening in science, which is so fascinating because this concept has been discussed philosophically, religiously, mythologically for thousands and thousands of years. And, and for us to be mapping that out in like in a scientific sense is just fascinating to me. Back to this idea of, you know, that you brought up, I, I liked how you said that, that, that the perception of the divine without awakens the, the divine within, you know, at, to, to its realization of its, what we might call potential. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a good way of formulating what, what it is some of these, these verses are talking about. Yeah, before we go on with that, I, I do want to jump back to a little bit that it talks about with John here, just because the the word first really caught my attention this time. Uh, verse 12, and I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. So this is talking about Christ's mortal experience and how he experienced mortality in a sequential way through time, just like we do, right? You know, we, we experience today and then we experience tomorrow and then we experience the day after tomorrow. We don't experience those days all at once. <laughs> it wouldn't make sense for us to do that. Um, our minds, uh, it within this state work in a sequential way, um, it through time. Whereas this is alluding to the Father and what we'd say the fullness of the Father being something that is ever-present in all time and, and space. And so we talked about this last time I brought up the – was it last time or the time before? I brought up the – in my seminary class where you know we had that bag of animals and you reached in and you tried to touch it. And, and then just like sequentially you gather information and you come to understand what it is. Whereas if you just open up the bag, you could see it and immediately know all at once what something is without having to experience it sequentially. And I think that's that's what it's kind of talking about here with Christ is that he came in to this mortal experience to understand what it meant to go through time and experiencing experience something through time. And I think that's largely one of – that could really be at the root – of what we experience in our life as suffering because it suffering is something that is is typically extended throughout a period of time right like if if we just feel like a really intense pain for like a split second it's like oh wow that really hurt but then there's nothing to really be upset about because the pain's gone right but yeah. if 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 that endures for an indefinite amount of time. And I think that the thing with suffering is a lot of times it, we can call it suffering because we don't know when it will end. Right. We just know there's just this, this period where we don't know when the pain will end. If we knew when it would end, then it'd be a whole lot easier to deal with, but there's not knowing it's this experiencing it through time and, and not having a definite end to it that I think is fundamental. And there's probably a lot more to it, uh, people that have thought about this more profoundly than I ever have, but fundamental to that concept of suffering. And so I think that that was really important for Christ to experience. And he had to do it within a mortal framework, within that sequential time. 
Yeah, it's interesting. That, you know, you're talking about that sequential time because you know that that really puts us into this epistemic worldview of of dualism. You know, the Book of Mormon says that we understand everything by their opposites, right? Um, light and darkness, hot and cold. Um, it's it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and and we begin to see things n- not just in in dualism, but it, it's like sequential dualism. And in, as as we march through time, we see things by their opposites, and. And in the in the sequence, we have I like that whole grace for grace and and truth for truth. It's the beatitudes is very sequential. It starts with one, it goes to two, it goes to three, it goes to four. But the whole Greek rhetoric and the way that it was constructed was that once you get to the last beatitude, the first and the last beatitude have the exact same blessing of 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 the kingdom of heaven. And the rhetorical style there was meant to show that once you get to the end of the Beatitudes, you start over again. It's like you connect the end of the first and the first is last and the last mm-hmm. is first. And, and all of a sudden, you just start the whole thing over again. So that the whole point is the journey. It's not the destination. Once you think you're done with your destination, you're, you're just kind of starting over again. And so the journey here seems sequential. It seems this way because of our 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 epistemic way of looking at things in dualism and and of and of, of one thing after another and causation, but yet, like the beatitudes and like what you're talking about here, everything gets connected back into itself. But yet Christ comes down and He experiences this with us. I, I find this fascinating about knowledge because everything then about this life becomes about this knowledge mm-hmm. and knowledge of of what. But the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil is what made us fall because it was the the knowledge of duality and so now we crave knowledge in dualism to be able to understand everything by their opposites and yet the resolution to all of that is to partake of the tree of life which is the one fruit but to get there the cherubim need to car- carve away and to purify with that flaming sword all the dross and everything that is not right and so it becomes that epistemic repentance process but when you come here to section to verse 24, man, I, I think we can spend an hour to two hours just on this page alone. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get through this, but it says, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. And he comes down in verse 28, and he that keepeth the commandments receiveth truth and light, and he is glorified in truth and knowledge of all things. We have this theme of knowledge. And so is this the knowledge of dualism? No, it's it's this knowledge of all things. It's like bringing all, everything into the into one, right? We're not talking about things by their opposites. And so he goes in and he says, "Hey, but whatever is less than this is evil." And so it seems like, are we going back into dualism here? But I think this has more to do with us rec- talking to us in the place in which we are epistemically, as opposed to the way the world is metaphysically, right? Because in reality. I, I don't see dualism. It's just the temperature is the temperature is the temperature. And my body temperature is in a particular place of like 98.6, 98.7. I read an article that says that our, our standard human body temperature is dropping. So maybe it's not 98.6, <laughs> but 98.5, I don't know, whatever. But I conceive of temperature of hot and cold by my frame of reference. I'm the subjective thing that gives hot and cold its value because in just objective reality there is no hot or cold it's just it's just, just it is. is what it is yeah it yeah. just is right i'm the thing that gives value to whether it's light or dark 
But whatever whatever that means is my evaluation. There are some animals that can see different wavelengths of light that would allow them to see in the dark, and I can't. So their perceptions of light and dark are different than mine. And so seeing all of these things of light and dark and good and evil are all matters of perception, not of reality. And so what is this? Is this knowledge here? Are they talking to us in our in our temporal fallen state, as it were, about how, because then that's when we get Satan back again in 25. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of the wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. And it's like, well, is if anything is going to pull you away from knowledge as a truth of all things, is that what it's telling us? Is it telling us that, that there is a lie, that there is dualism? Or is it telling us that anything that takes us out of the unity of all knowledge, of just things as they really are, that love of God, as it were, that anything that pulls us out, because then in the guarded myth, that would make sense because it's, we've ascribed it to the Satan, right? To the serpent, that he's the one who gets us to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge to pull us into dualism. When in reality, it's just the singular thing. The reality is just what reality is. And yet, consciously, from our matters of perception, Satan, that liar from the beginning, is always trying to pull us into something different than just that one unity of understanding. I think one of the keys there is he's saying more or less than this, right? That that you 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 kind of go to either side of that. You you've got metaphorically, you've got the path and the rod of iron that leads to the tree of life, and you know either side of that whichever way you want to go with it is is missing the point it's missing the mark right if we talk about sin being missing the target that right. it, it doesn't matter which way you go whether you go one way or another you're still off the target <laughs> uh says so more or less than this is the spirit of the wicked one who is alive from the beginning you know i think talking about this in in the false self sense makes sense i love the analogy going back to the whole Michelangelo and, and the marble thing where, you know, the, we were just removing this, the, what didn't belong to reveal what was on underneath, you know, and, and it's whatever is, is holding that image back from revealing itself, you know, what's ever more or less than that is the lie, right? It's not the true self. It is holding back that true self from manifesting from coming forth going down here man was also in the beginning with god the word beginning is interesting here i guess it it's said over there in verse 23 you are also you were also in the beginning with the father which is spirit even the spirit of truth you know we talked about the sequential experience of time and so this word beginning almost seems to be sort of a condescension of language. You know, how do you explain to someone who is experiencing time, you know, their life in this dimension of time, how do you explain to them the existence that they had? See, I'm even using past tense, right? Because our language doesn't have this ability. <laughs> how do you how do you explain to someone a, a condition uh, that they are when they're with God, right? Without talking about sequential time. Well, it was before this life, but not really because it didn't, you know, this life is something you experience through time. So it wasn't really before, it was just different. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you say the beginning because in our experience of from birth to death, 
oh, well, it was before birth, before my birth. So it must have been, you know, something in the beginning. And um, it, it just makes the most sense metaphorically. But I think that if I stretch my mind hard enough, I, I could I could grasp, maybe just barely scratch the concept that it's not referring to a a, a beginning in a sequential time sense. Yeah, that's really hard. You know, going back to the Beatitudes, it, the journey, everything's connected. Everything's the course of God is one eternal round, as it were, right? And Joseph and the king fall at sermon. He he holds up the ring. And he says, if I were to cut it in half, there's a beginning and end. But right now, there's no beginning. There's no end. It's just, it's it's all present, right? And so, yeah, if I stretch my mind, how does this actually work? Because we are so conditioned through our own epistemology of seeing if there is space, then there's time. And if there's something in space, then that means that there is now time and, and, th- and they're related. So if God is embodied, then that means that he fills space. And so therefore there has to be some kind of sequen- sequential time and we cannot conceive of something outside of that. How does that work? You know, I think Latter-day Saints, we think we straw man the Trinity. <laughs> is yeah, that blasphemous to say? <laughs> we do. <laughs> but I think we straw man the Trinity really, really bad. And I have to admit that I've done this a lot in my life because it really took me, even in my adult years, to to really study a lot of Catholic lit- literature and and really pour myself into into the doctrines of the Trinity to see how much beauty there is. And now, of course, there's going to be problems that present itself, and there have been problems for the last 3,000 years. There's been philosophers trying to resolve this thing about an unembodied, um, boundless God and about how to define that. But at the same time, Latter-day Saints, we believe in, in an embodied God, and we think that solves something. And it really doesn't solve anything. It just gives us a whole other list of different difficulties sure. to overcome. Right? Sure. And so, and one of those is this time and space thing. How does God exist in time and space? Because at that point, if he has an, if he's embodied, then there has to be time, but it's not time. Uh, yeah. And at this point, it all breaks down. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I get tired. <laughs> but intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither can, indeed, can it be. I, and I love this statement because... Again, like what you had said, Ben, I don't know if this is Joseph Smith intentionally doing this, but this is very much a type of like conservation of mass and energy yeah, kind of kind of ahead of its time and it in its in its broader implications, sure. Right. So, you know, the, the the fact that energy was not created, this intelligence, this light was not it was not created, it's just always been and so he follows this eighteen thirty three context all the way through to 1844 with his King Follett sermon. So, so by the time he gets to the King Follett, he's had, he's had 11 years of, of really thinking about this stuff to really grow on it, to see what's, what's there. But all truth is independent in the sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence. Also, otherwise there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man and here is the condemnation of man. Because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. You know, so this goes back to the, you know, section 88 when it talks about the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Intelligence may have been co- and may be co-eternal with God. But one of the things I've wondered is, in talking about agency here in verse 31, it says, uh, I, I think it's in Moses. Is it a Moses where it's like, in the day that I, God, gave man his agency? I think it's yeah. That's Enoch. That's the it's oh, Enoch, a vision right. of Enoch, and he says yeah. yeah. And so th- there's this uh, so there's this conversation that goes on in Mormonism, and it's still ongoing, and there's not an answer to it. I have a particular take on it, and it's that I 
It's whether or not God gave man something he did not have before called agency, or whether or not agency was inherent in all of matter. So is agency a a principle that is inherent in all intelligence, or is it a gift that was given and can be revoked? Is Is it it a quality that's bestowed on by an external? Yeah. And so because of that scripture, in that day that I gave man his agency, there's room for saying, yes, this was not with man, now it is, and it can be revoked. So agency can be revoked, right? For me, my take on that has always been that agency is sacrosanct in, it's a part of all of matter. Everything has agency. And that it wasn't that metaphysically agency was bestowed, but it was that epistemically, at some point, God awoke matter to recognize what it has always already been. Mm -hmm. And I personally find far more consistency with that interpretation that when God gave man his agency, it wasn't a metaphysical gift. It was it was an epistemic blessing. That It could have also been written, I, the Lord God, awoke man to a sense of what was already there, as it were. Well, I think that's what verse 30 is saying, basically. That, right, that, that God places it within a sphere, and within that sphere, you have a definition of existence and, and, and awareness, and, and so you act within that. To simply posit that our intelligence was in the beginning with God has to posit also that there's certain certain qualities that are eternal within us, and if agency isn't one of those, then verse thirty says there's no existence, right? And so I think I think it has to be that um, in order for this to be a consistent way of um, of formulating, you know, the, the nature of man. Now you talked about how it doesn't have to be consistent if it's a mode, but I think (laughs) that, um, (laughs) but this, you know, is spelling out a cosmology and a nature of man. I think there has to be some, some consistency here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And just spelling out the cosmology. We're not trying to get into a modality here, (laughs) but it's, uh, no. And and that also makes a lot of sense there with condemnation because the condemnation there would be more epistemic than not metaphysical because that's how we think about our, either our blessing or our condemnation is that we are either physically lifted up into the spiritual heights or we are physically cast down into, into the depths. But then that's where we go back to section 88 is section 88 is trying to get us to say, no, 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 no. God's light is everywhere. It's not, God is not a variable. God is the thing. And God is in and through all things. We are the variables. We are the things that see things in various perceptions and various ways of light and so that we, as that thing which is the darkness, that the light shineth in the darkness, and we, our perception is the darkness, not us physically, because physically we're made in the image of God, but perception-wise, we are, we are that, our minds are darkened. Like Paul says, we have those scales on our eyes, that as mm-hmm. we repent and see God differently, those scales fall from our eyes, and we learn to see things more clearly. I like the analogy you gave back with 88 and saying that maybe in the temple, the better symbolism would not be that as you go in each room that gets brighter, but that we like turn the lights full blast on every room and we just hand out sunglasses that we gradually yeah. take off, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which would probably be more accurate to the symbolism Transitions of what lenses. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so in that, in that way, we become more aware of, the, of God's presence that is everywhere and in and through all things that it talks about in 88. So that the condemnation there 
is that with that agency, we choose not to see the light that is already there present for us. That God is our advocate and, and Jesus is our, is our advocate with the Father is always trying to get us to recognize what is always already present. And Satan as the prosecutor is always trying to get us to be able to think that you know, we're not worthy of that. I love, love, love the movie Arrival. I think it is one of the most profound movies ever made. And I think if someone reads section 93 and then they go watch that movie, they'd be like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So in the, there's a million things uh, to talk about with that movie, but I only want to, to relate this, probably only this one point. I might get into more stuff. (laughs) The process of this, there's, there's a particular scientist in this movie and she is a linguist and she is tasked with learning the language of these aliens so that she can understand they're trying to communicate something to human beings and so spoiler alerts if you guys haven't seen the movie you know skip a few minutes ahead in the podcast (laughs) (laughs) um you gotta go you gotta see this movie um and so what it is 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 she takes on the task of learning their language well their language is written in circles and it's and she be as she's learning their language she starts having experiences outside of time she starts having experiences where she's she's seeing quote unquote the future or the past and she doesn't know if it's the future or the past it's just there with her and because what what's happening is as she's learning this language she's becoming aware of reality outside of time the very language itself is awakening this sense of of reality within her and like i said their language is all written in circles and so everything is present in the moment when they communicate things and there are, there's all these nuances within within the circle and so i just i love this concept that uh you know we talked about last time like language and and it being the language of our soul i love this idea that that as we come into an experience with god and we learn who we are and he awakens within us who we truly are and we have these these experiences it's like we're learning that language of our soul and and the more that we do that we we come closer and closer as it says in verse 1 to seeing the face of god we come to see reality for what it is and we step outside of of this, um, this locked-in mortal experience uh, uh, that that we might be having, and 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 so I, just, I love how the movie sort of represents that and on a a different a different in a different way. I like that movie too. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I think I'm gonna go have to go watch it again. Oh, it's um, amazing. <laughs> in verse thirty-five, I think this goes back to what we talked about a little bit before, Ben, with uh, with that internal and that external conversation of God when it says. The elements are the tabernacle of God, and man is the tabernacle of God. Even the temples, and whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. Okay, so a little bit of wrathful, vengeful, spiteful, destructive God there. But what is he talking about? So what was present for me when we were we were t- kind of discussing this a little bit before recording in that the elements are the tabernacle of God, man is a tabernacle of God, even the temple. It seems to be that what's happening is God's coming out and he's saying, listen— Everything, I'm in and through all things, like you said in 88. Everything testifies of me, as Alma says, what, in, in, in what, Alma 30? And, and, and in this, the elements are the tabernacle of God. Man is the tabernacle of God. Everything is the tabernacle of God. 
the, the, God is in everything. Now, the, we talked about this a little bit before, I think when we were doing 88, in that there's this really big push in Mormonism against this idea of called pantheism. And pantheism is a philosophy that came from a, a philosopher named Spinoza. And Spinoza had argued that God is everything. Like, for instance, the table in front of me or the computer in front of me or me or the tree or the sky. Everything is God. Like, like that's what God is. But expanded beyond that, it says, no, 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 God isn't that thing, but God is in and through all, God is that thing that gives life to all of that. And in giving life to all of that, God, God is over all of that. God, God is omniscient. He's, everything's present to him. Everything is, is conscious, conscious to him, that he sees everything and, and that everything is there present for him. And that comes out in section 88, and that's called panentheism. It's a different, it's a different way of looking at it. But when I see here that the elements are the tabernacle of God, man is the tabernacle of God, even the temples, and whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. Well, that's really kind of interesting, because if God literally is everything, how can something be defiled? Right? How can, will God destroy himself? How can, how can something be defiled um, if God is in and through all things? And so, and so do we take on like antimatter? Is there like some kind of dark matter? Is there something? And I don't think that's what it's saying at all. I think we're getting into some figurative top here where we're getting back again into epistemology that that thing, which that entity, that conscious entity, that thing, which has intelligence, that thing, which, which has agency and perceives its agency. If it comes through and it stays in the false self, God is not going to validate the perceptions of the false self. And I think that's when it gets in that God cannot allow or, or, or look upon sin with the least degrees of allowance. I think that's what's going on here. It's not that God sees that we ourselves are physically defiled or that we metaphysically, because we're always already worthy in that spiritual sense and in what we are. But the fact that we stay in that false self-perception God will not dignify that false self-perception because that false self-perception is the voice of the accuser as well. It's that thing that tells us that we're unworthy, that we're not enough, that we're not good enough, that all those things about ourselves that keep us down, that, that produce shame and, and hopelessness. But yet it's repentance and it's that thing that brings us out and that that is the thing that God is helping us destroy, is that false self-facade. And it's almost like we've perverted the temple. And so there's this imagery of perverting the temple, but it's not that the temple is really perverted. It's not like even in the temple of Solomon, when Christ cleansed out the leopard, it's not that the space, it's not that the physical temple had been defiled. It was this metaphorical thing that the presence there and the perception of what was going on there was twisted and distorted. The space was just the space was just the space, right? And the same thing with our bodies. So I see that the, the temple talk here is that these temples are always there with god but that that false self-perception builds the facade of this temple that god will not dignify and is always going to help us overcome and and break through and get rid of yeah i mean we i looked up the word defiled you know it's like polluted or or desecrated or, or whatever there's in history what what you have happening when you have like a one civilization taking over another, they typically, the way they go about it is uh, culturally, they go into their temples and they they destroy all their gods and they put in their gods or they they build on top of it, right? Because they're, 
they're taking over that and and that's a type of a defiling of the temple right because they're taking that out so i see almost as as this defiling of the temple uh some whatever process we go through in which we we make god in our own image or in which we we worship false gods right is is that that's defiling that temple because our temple which is supposed to be the temple of god is not being put to the purpose of of the true self or of god as as such and so that that is being defiled in that sense right and so what needs to happen to that well it needs to be repurposed <laughs> it needs to be repurposed to a temple that actually has the image of god which is us we are the image of god and so we need to stop looking to other things as uh, um, that validation but rather looking to to christ who is our true self as the image that we want to actually portray within our temple, so to speak, right? That image in your countenance that Alma talks about and, and so forth, that, that is the image we want in our temple in, in a metaphorical sense, right? We're not, we're not talking about, you know, making our physical appearance look in a certain way. That's, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about here. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that bears out there in verse 38 where it says, Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, and God having redeemed man from the fall, men became again in their infant state innocent before God. Like it's just another way of being able to say what we're saying there, that it's mm. it's this process that, that we go through and we knew our true self. We were in the presence of God as our true self. And the fall was to see ourselves not as we truly were, but as we perceive we are now as fallen beings. And that, and that that way back, and the wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the traditions of their fathers. You know, so, so these are things get handed down to us. And when I see these wicked traditions of their fathers, I've thought about that a lot about what, what does this mean, the, the traditions of our fathers? And I think in a way, it's that we begin to accept the foundations of the societies that we're given. Like, for instance, in our, in, in our culture and civilization right now, all throughout the world, governments of men rule every square inch of this globe. And every government of man over every square inch of this globe all utilize the same tactics of, of using violence and coercion to fulfill and to establish social unity, cohesion, and order. And so right now, if I were to go out and if I were to go onto the freeway here, I have a 65 mile an hour speed limit. If I were to go 70 miles an hour, theoretically, they could pull me over. And if I pull over and I'm very polite and I don't threaten anybody and the, the policeman comes up and says, you know, sir, could I please see your, your license and your registration, please, and your insurance? And I simply say, no, thank you. The, the cop is not going to be like, I, I see your point and walk away. <laughs> You know, it, he's not going to say, "Hey, thanks for being polite," and just leave it at that. And if I and if he gives me another order and I say no, eventually coercion and violence is going to be used against me for for going five miles an hour over the speed limit. Just by non-violently saying no, I will eventually have coercion and violence on me. Now, even if I didn't, let's say I, I had done nothing wrong and I still didn't comply, having done nothing wrong, and legally. 
I should be within my rights to be able to, to, to do exactly what I'm doing and, and to say no. But then violence and coercion are still used against me, right? That's what government is. I mean, this is Max Weber. Max Weber came out and, uh, and as the, as the famed sociologist and he defines that government is basically the socially acceptable monopoly of violence and coercion. That that's what government is. The socially acceptable monopoly of violence and coercion. You know, it's illegal to fight, right? You know, at all. Like if two people are out in in my, in my, in front of my street and they're hitting each other, you know, that's assault and battery, right? That's assault. They they can go to jail for that. If two people are out there fighting and, and, and public displays of that. Now in order, but what about boxing? Well, in order to make boxing not illegal, you got to go down to the Get a you gotta go down and get a license. Yeah, you gotta get permission from the state because that's the monopoly that authorizes these public displays of fights to be able to do these things. You know, you get a boxing license to go out there and to be able to actually perform violence with a license. You couldn't, you didn't have this right to do it because the state is the one that holds a monopoly on this right. And they give you a license that you didn't have before to be able to do this. That's the whole idea here. And so what we start to notice is that the state the idea of how this, and we've talked about this, Ben, a lot coming from the Cain narrative, but it's from the very beginning is that this narrative was handed down from one generation to another generation to another generation. And we just accept violence a priori. We, we accept it without even questioning it. In fact, in all of the books that we have about justice, justice really is just about when, where, how, and how much to use violence to control bad behavior. That violence is the acceptable last resort to achieve an ends. Yeah. And violence and, is yeah. It, violence is the resort to, to achieve an end. It's either the threat thereof or the actual use of it. And it's so we don't question not using violence. We just question how much we can use it, where we can use it, who can use it, how much we can use it, in what, and in what scenarios and in contexts we can use yeah, it. Yeah, we don't we, we don't question whether we have it or not. We just question where to put the fence around it. Exactly right. <laughs> and, and and so when we start to see the other thing that's handed down to us that we never think about and that governs our society is the idea of scarcity. Yeah. Scarcity is the is the literal law and understanding a priori that governs economics. It's like the dollar bills, our jobs, how much we get paid, how much money we make, how much money we're able to spend in the world. Our whole life in order to provide for ourselves and our families is all based on the construct of scarcity. And when we read about Zion and in Zion, there is more and enough. And there's not really this idea of scarcity. The scarcity becomes one of those things, those ideas that are handed down to us that seem like an absolute reality and that govern our lives. And we never even recognize it. The idea, whoever thought that the idea of scarcity was the central idea that controls almost the, everything that you do. Everything that we do is controlled by this idea of scarcity and we never even think about it. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, when it says these false traditions that are handed down from the fathers, these are the kind of things that I tend to try to find of like what ideas were handed down to me about the way society operates because for as good as it is where I live in the good old United States of America and, and for all of the mythos and ethos that, you know, the United States is the best country in the world. And, and, and I, I, I don't want to be flippant about that, but I know we even have listeners that are outside the United States and they live in some beautiful places that I want to go. 
But that's very much an American way of thinking, right? USA is number one in everything. It's not, but we like to think it is. And what ideas were handed down to me, because for as good as it is where I live, this is not Zion. This is not utopia. This was not what was promised of God to be the the end result. So what are we doing right now? What beliefs do we have? What axioms do we have? What have we not challenged of the way that we live our lives that God has been trying to teach us from the beginning? What are those uh, false assumptions and traditions that were handed down that are never questioned that keep repeating this cyclical pattern that we never actually established Zion? Yeah. I think that's a pretty foundational question that we can ask ourselves, you know, to kind of look at look at the assumptions we've made about life and how we live it and how we interact with other people and start measuring those against what it is that Christ taught us, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, right? How do our assumptions about life and and how we live it and interact with others measure against that? And what things are off? And if they're off, might those be termed false traditions, right? And if they are, what are we going to do about that? Now, that's probably a lot to bite off and chew for any individual, (laughs) because if I start asking myself that, there's going to be like all kinds of incongruencies, right? Um, But... But, uh, you know, that, that's at least a, a place to start. Maybe just take it one verse at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it has been for me. I've had to go through some serious moments of deconstruction in the, in challenging the assumptions that I have about the world based on ideas that were handed down to me from my culture, from my civilization, from my family, from all sorts of things. I've had to really challenge the, some of those narratives. And, to be, it's painful. It's really painful. Like it, it, it'll literally take a physical tax and toll on you. It's, you know, when you talk about how emptying from that first beatitude of poverty and spirit will lead to mourning, man, Jesus wasn't lying. That's like some serious next level prophecy and like, Hey, listen, once you empty, there's a big mourning phase that's going to come along after that. Hmm. Because once you start challenging the very assumptions of your identity and of your culture and of what you think you are, down to your most intimate identities, the things that you gain the most meaning from, and you have to be willing to put all of that on the altar. And it doesn't mean that you're going to leave everything on the altar, but you just have to be willing to put everything there on the altar, like that Abrahamic sacrifice. you got, you got to be willing to leave it all there. Willing, yeah. And the willingness there is where God is able to say, gotcha. See this thing right here? This thing right here is not really working for you, is it? And I'm like, ah, gosh, dang it. I really liked that thing. Right? And he's like, but did you? Did you really like that thing? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I did. (laughs) And God's like, but did you really? I'm like, no. But but it's, it's, it's like the thing that you don't, you don't need. It causes you pain, but you don't want to let it go. And God's like, you can let that one go. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to. He's like, yeah, you really do. I'm like, I know I do, but it's really hard. And so a lot of these really big, meaningful narratives that I've built for myself, and I've had to let those go. And I'm like, where does that even leave me? I have no identity if I don't have those things. 
if I don't have those constructs about myself or the world or about anything else around me, like, what am I going to do? And yet, as I let go of the, the traditions that have been handed down to me and I just allow God to reveal himself, that's where some of the really good stuff happens. Yeah. So, Ben, from here, we, we jump into this discussion of children. I've commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. If you have not taught your children light and truth, according to the commandments, and that wicked one hath power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. Okay. 42. First off, yes, when we give ourselves power to that voice that accuses us, there's going to be affliction. But here, just like I think I said it last week, it may have been the week before, just because you're going through trauma or affliction does not mean that you are engaged in sin. Right. Sometimes pain and trauma is just pain and trauma. Even Jesus wept because sometimes stuff is just sad. And sometimes in our lives, things are just sad. And that's where God comes and sits with us. And it's just sad. And so just because we go through those moments, it doesn't mean that we're wicked. And it doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. If we pay attention to that voice and that accusing voice, yeah, we're going to be kind of creating some moments for ourselves. And we, and we, and man, I've gotten to some pretty crazy patterns, some cyclical patterns of making these narratives, these accusing narratives and living into them, man. I've, I've made some, some whoppers of, self-accusation narratives. And it takes a while to get rid of them. But I've really done my best not to pass those on to my kids. And my wife, bless her heart, she's she's really good at this kind of stuff. She's so much better than I am at this kind of stuff, at, at really kind of framing new narratives for the kids and not letting past generational trauma get handed down. She's so much better. I'm so grateful for my wife because of that. But I've been very intentional. I haven't wanted past generational trauma to get passed down to my kids. And man, that's that's a hard one. That's a really hard one for me. You know, as you're saying with verse 42, it says, this is the cause of your affliction. Just because in this case, these things cause affliction for Frederick J. Williams doesn't, you know, just like you were saying, you know, just because a all A's equal B's doesn't mean all B's equal A's, right? <laughs> Okay, so just because these, if 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 you do these things, it will cause you affliction. It's not saying that you, if you have affliction, that you necessarily meant you did these things. Sometimes just reality is the way it is. You know, um, stuff that we don't like happens. It's it's part of reality. Um, and what's the quote that just saw? that Lindsay put in a meme. Here it is. God doesn't stop the bad things from happening. That's never been part of the promise. The promise is I am with you. I am with you now until the end of time. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at here is that even, even in the moments when we cause our own affliction, right? That God can still be with us. All we have to do is turn to him and see that he's there. 
you know, I also like the the other thing is just like, you know, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you do stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> I love that meme so much. <laughs> and, and it's like, yes, sometimes that is the reason, but it's not always the reason. And so it may be a good thing to, when something, you know, that you don't like happens, it may be a good thing to quickly examine yourself. Hey, was was is there anything that I'm doing that that brought this about? But not in an accusatory way, right? Because the the Lord simply he he explains this is the case, and then he comes back to him and says, This is the way out of it, right here. Not in an accusatory, condemnatory way. There's no there's no condemnation here. The condemnation was over there when it says they receive not the light. Right? But he's giving them light. And when they receive it, there's no condemnation. Well, I think it, it can be helpful for us to look at ourselves and say, hey, is, is there anything that I did that that really brought this about? And if so, let's let's here's the way out of it. Um, but to not dwell on that and realize that it just because something bad happens in your life does does not mean uh that it's your fault. Um I think though that God can be in any of those things. And so no matter what it is that happens, we can find God in that. And he can turn that to our good. What did, what did we talk about last time? That that all things will work together for our good. And we want to be careful to to nuance that with, you know, there can be terrible, horrific, awful things that happen to people and we're not saying that God intended for those things to happen or that he caused them to happen, but that because of the nature of who we are as God's children, good, because of who we are, good can always come away from that. Not because of the thing that happened, but because of who we are. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I don't have anything to expound on that. That was that was very succinct. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, here, I mean, I, I think this is interesting as we close out 93 because, you know, he's talking with, he's talking with Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith kind of gets a little bit of a chastisement here with, uh, with, and with Frederick G. Williams. And they both, they both get a chastisement for, for not taking care of their families as they needed to. Um, Sidney Reagan gets a little bit of a head nod with, uh, hey, just go proclaim the gospel and uh, this acceptable year of the Lord. So, Ben, you look this up. So this is in verse 51, this acceptable year of the Lord. It says in verse 51, And now I say unto you, my friends, let my servant Sidney Rigdon go on his journey and make haste and also proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the gospel of salvation as I shall give him utterance. And by your prayer of faith, with one consent, I will uphold you. So what's this acceptable year of the Lord that you looked up, Ben? I remembered this phrase from Isaiah. Went up and looked some of the context. This is used in messianic passages um, to refer to Christ coming. An acceptable year of the Lord is also used in the context of the Jubilee year. So in Jewish tradition, um, you have every seventh day is a day of rest. Every seventh year um, is a year of rest. I don't know what everything that's entitled to that. And then you have every seventh seventh year so you have seven times seven which is 49 and so the 50th year is what we call jubilee 
And so the Jubilee year is a year where there's general forgiveness. Now, this is sometimes uh, forgiveness of debts, sometimes, you know, but, but really to, you know, more fundamentally, it was supposed to be this year that you were uh, required, quote unquote, to forgive everything. And so this is the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the Jubilee year of the Lord. Everything's forgiven. This is fascinating in this concept of Sidney Rigdon going out and preaching this. I think particularly with the personality of Sidney Rigdon, but but that's, let's set that aside for a moment. <laughs> Maybe it's interesting that the Lord said, Sidney Rigdon, you need to do this. <laughs> because he was he was kind of a fiery preacher. You know, he was a, a little bit in your face sometimes. Uh, maybe not sometimes, maybe a lot. <laughs> and right. so to send Cindy Rignan out to do this, declare the acceptable year of the Lord, and this is a message of peace, of forgiveness, of of amnesty, right? And that's what this acceptable year of the Lord uh, is. It's uh, it's also, like I said, a, a phrase that alludes to the, the messianic, the coming of Messiah to forgive and deliver his people. This is deliverance. I love the phrase, and uh, I like how it's used here to to send people out to, to preach the gospel. Yeah, I like that too. So we'll close here, and it says, And verily I say unto you, that it is my will that you should hasten to translate my scriptures and to obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms and of the laws of God and man, and all for the salvation of Zion. Amen. You know, Ben, we've talked a lot about the idea that God's not in a hurry. And yet, here in this verse, we have uh, we have two hastens. We have, or I yeah. think, we have make a make haste and a hasten. It's like, yeah. well, what is God talking about here? And I think, in a lot of regard, God's not in a hurry. God's always on time. He always knows what's going to happen. I think, in a lot of ways, this is a mortal man perception. In that, we're the ones who have expectations. We're the ones who live in our false self, and sometimes that false self. If for whatever reason, I know for in, in, my, in my life, there are times when I've been working too much, I've been hastening too much, and God's like, hey, 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 just just, just slow down a little bit. And, and that's my turn in that context and time of my life where I've needed to be like, oh, okay. And then there's times when I get into the false self-narratives where I'm really down on myself and it's really hard for me, whether anxiety or depression or whatever, to be able to like put one front, foot in front of the other. And God comes along and is like, hey, you need a little pick-me-up? And I'm like, yeah. And so, the, and so there's like this, hey, let's get going a little bit quicker. I'm like, okay. And so in a lot of ways, I see this whole hastening thing as being very strategic to who and what they are at the time and what they need. Because in the grand scheme of things, why is God in a hurry? I mean, God, <laughs> is he like a bad planner? He just not get it right. He's like, you know what? I, I shouldn't have taken as much time on that day of rest as I needed to. I was really behind on things and now I've got to hurry up. You know, that's, that's just, that's just not the way this works. It's like, do we like see God? I promised Michael I'd have these worlds exalted by 12 PM today. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted my Wheaties, but I just didn't get it in time, man. Hey, that's just not what's going on. That's not in the context of God. So this hasten thing cannot conceive this being from God. That this is for us. And I think it has to do with maybe something that was going on with them at the time. So whenever we see this, hey, don't walk faster than you're able. You know, he tells them that sometimes. And then other times he's like, hey, hasten the work. 
And other times he's like, hey, slow down. So I, I think it has very much to do with helping them manage their own self-perception and their own false self in recognizing that God's really good with the whole thing. He just really wants us to be able to recognize that true self part of us. Everything else after that is time and space and is our own construct. I think it might be referencing like distractions, right? Hey, it's it's time to let the distractions go and, and focus, um, you know, something like that. Yeah, I like that too. Well, awesome. Well, Ben, I have nothing more to talk about. How about you? Nope, that's it. Okay, awesome. Well, hey, everyone, thanks for sticking around with us. And uh, and thank you for all the comments. So, we, you know, we've gotten uh, a lot of comments into our... Uh, into our Facebook page, and this week I was I was a little slow in getting to uh, in getting to a bunch of comments, so I apologize for that. I, I promise to do my best to be better, but uh, we'll see how that ends up panning out. <laughs> Lindsay's Lindsay's really good. A big shout out to Lindsay Olin, who is uh, if anybody follows us on social media on Facebook and you see all the fantastic memes that are put out, that and all of the all the commentary that's all by Lindsay Olin. Man, she's awesome. She's just in, incredibly consistent with everything that she does, really and. Good. Uh, really good and so all the responses and comments and everything that's put out uh man we, we just wouldn't be able to do this with uh, without her and so thank you Lindsay, for everything that you do and uh, she tells me about all the comments and then i i'm i'm so add unless i may have time and space right then and there to answer things and to get on top of things i i forget so <laughs> be patient with me and, and we'll get around to it but thank you so much for all the comments and for the the kind remarks and for the and for the the emails that we get it keeps us going and uh and, and we're glad that uh that this is doing some good. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.